How am I then a villain? Well, this advice is free, I give, and honest. Probable to thinking, and indeed, the course to win the moor again. His soul is so enfettered to Desdemona's love that she may, may, can make, do what she list, even as her appetite shall play the god with his weak function. So will I turn her virtue... into pitch, and out of her own goodness, make the net that shall enmesh them all. Greetings, mortals, and welcome to another episode of A Podcast But Evil. I'm Dan Oster. And I'm Doug Leaf. And Doug, who do we have joining us today? Today we're covering Shakespeare's Iago, and given that uh, Shakespeare is fairly complicated and heady stuff, I thought we should bring in a, uh, a heavy hitter and an expert. So I reached out to my old uh, alma mater at UCLA, and uh, we have with us Professor, a uh, distinguished professor, I should say, Robert Watson from UCLA, who uh, specializes in all things Shakespeare and many other uh, uh playwrights of his era. Professor Watson, thank you so much for taking the time out to, to join us on this goofy little experiment we like to do. Sure, glad to be with you. So before we uh, get into kind of the details of this character, Professor, is there is there anything that you find particularly special about uh, Iago as opposed to, say, Shakespeare's other villains? And obviously he has many, but uh, what, what kind of sets Iago apart in your mind? I think it's just because he is profoundly inscrutable and Shakespeare is kind of constantly taunting us and Iago is actually constantly taunting us about not quite knowing why he is the way he is. Mm. So you just keep kind of digging and wanting to get a take on the character and then he he pulls it away again. It's a little like, um, was that in The Dark Knight, The Joker? You know, every time you got a whole storyline, right? And it turns out this is really what drives him. And then that sort of falls apart, too. Uh, so I think the idea is you get Shakespeare sometimes will give you villains and he gives you lots of good understanding of the psychology of the villain. And in Iago, he just deprives you. Hmm. It's, Dost it, thou want to know how I got these scars? <laughs> it's funny you said that. You know, when I started looking into the character for this episode, I'll admit I didn't do the homework either. Um, but I did uh, I did go and watch the Branda movie. I had time to do that. And as I watched that and I did some more research, the first thought I had was, oh, wow, Shakespeare created the Joker. That's who this guy kind of is. I mean, as you said, his... He's so amoral, and and we don't get a good sense of exactly why. He gives us hints here and there, but we don't know if he's telling us the truth or not. And it's it, it makes him more dangerous and interesting, I think. Yeah, in fact, I'm, I'm sure that Christopher Nolan was thinking about Iago when he made that character. There's just all these things that he says about, you know, figuring out what he's after and... Some men aren't looking for anything logical like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn, and that's him. I really think huh. that's where we where we go with Iago. You got a real yeah. dangerous minds approach to getting your students excited about Iago. <laughs> you guys all like the Joker? Well, <laughs> let you me go through generations you. of that where your cultural pop references collapse into oblivion and you right. have to try. <laughs> um, so, Professor, the way we like to kick this uh, podcast off usually is uh, the, the division of labor usually is I do all the research and Dan comes in uh, uh, as a tabula rasa. Uh, or rather, <laughs> not even a tabula, a, tab, a tabula uh, uh, cultural osmosis. 
mm-hmm. uh, to tell us what he knows about the character Stone Cold. So, Dan, right. uh, take it away. I'm very poorly read, but I have amazing retention. <laughs> so I'm, usually to kind of get our audience on the same page, I just try to go with what I what I know. Okay, so Iago, uh, a character from Shakespeare's Othello. Othello. I know most of this from the Kenneth Branagh movie, which I saw, you know, whenever it came out. So I was very young when I saw it. But Othello... He's a he's a moor, correct? Uh, Dan, Dan, I have to stop you there. Actually, the the card says moops. <laughs> <laughs> That's a misprint. <laughs> yeah, but yes, he's a moor, which I actually don't even really entirely know what that means. Maybe I should pull the car over for a second and get a little information on that. You know, a, the moor was a short version of what was called the black moor. It was a fairly fluid term, but essentially it meant somebody who came in probably from the Islamic world and was of darker complexion than you would expect in England, where pale is the word. Mm, okay. And uh, he, Othello, is, he's like, is he a military guy, like a captain or something of some kind? Yeah, he's a general. Okay, he's a general, and Iago serves under him. And as you were saying, his motives are ill-defined. There's a lot of room for interpretation there i sort of remembered maybe i was remembering incorrectly i thought oh maybe he was like or maybe this is hinted at as a possible motive that he'd been passed over uh for a promotion is that ever kind of brought up absolutely that's where it starts really that's what iago's telling us in the very first scene he's telling this guy's going to exploit named rodrigo and he's complaining about the fact that instead of him getting the promotion to lieutenant this guy named michael cassio sort of pretty boy from florence gets the job and Casio. Casio, you know Casio. <laughs> yes, he's he's known for his digital watches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're very close there. Only one S too many. So it's interesting because right away, Iago starts in on kind of a class resentment angle. He talks about how he was up and he, he's fought up beside Othello in all these great battles and has proven himself. And all of a sudden they bring in this guy named Cassio. He says he's an arithmetician, a Florentine, one that knows the battle of the field no more than a spinster. He just says, you know, it's oh. like he's complaining. It's like, you know, I came up from the mailroom, but here's this guy and he's got his <laughs> fancy degree. And they bring him in because he's read books about the army. You know, it, it wow. he really hits that note. And this is something Iago does brilliantly all along. He's the regular guy. He's the most regular guy that you can oh. imagine. And he and so he has all these um, soliloquies uh, to the audience, right? So he's basically saying, like, I'm, I'm just a regular guy. Yeah, although he also kind of brings us in. It's sort of tantalizing. It's the other problem with Iago is you get start to feel complicit with him because he's whispering mm-hmm. to all these secrets that the people up on the stage desperately need to know, right? Ah, right. <laughs> and you have no way of telling them. Yeah, it's those asides from Iago are interesting because in most Shakespeare plays, I mean, it's not uncommon to have asides like that where characters turn to the audience and say something. But this is the only play that I can recall encountering where it seems like he's the only character that does it. Usually it's kind of, you know, different characters will do it at different times. But here he kind of forms a special relationship with the audience by sort of being, it almost feels like he's the protagonist in some ways. He has more lines than Othello does. And he kind of, by sort of being the only one to turn to the audience and and have these moments, like you said, he sort of makes us complicit in what he's doing. He, you know, he, you're along for this ride. And the tragedy, of course, is that you, with armed with this information, can't pass it along to Othello or Desdemona or anyone else who needs to hear it. Exactly. Yep. He's the one who kind of breaks that fourth wall. It's like having only one character in the office whoever looks at the camera. Well, this was clearly an inspiration for uh, both uh, the British and the American versions of House of Cards. 
Ah, uh, see, I didn't see that, but I bet it was. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, I, I forget who who played the character Kevin in the British version. There's Kevin Spacey in the American one, and then there's the British one, which is actually, I mean, they have British accents, so it feels far more Shakespearean. But I also believe it's it's intended to be a little more Shakespearean. But just that that relationship is that's exactly what the show is. You know, it's this one character making you feel complicit in all of his malfeasance. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, Iago keeps giving you and giving other people these perfectly plausible explanations for his behavior. So, you know, he claims that he Mm. loves Desdemona, although he has a weird line about that. He says, you know, I do love her too, not out of absolute lust, though peradventure, which means, you know, maybe, though peradventure I stand accountant for as great a sin. Like, what does that mean? But that's actually, if you go to Shakespeare's sources, this um, old uh, Italian novella that he basically took the play out of, in that play, it's very clear that that's what's going on. Iago is in love with Desdemona, the beautiful young woman whose marriage he's going to destroy. And so that drives everything. But Shakespeare, instead of doing what you would expect you would do, you got an old story, you're going to write a play about it, you want to clarify the character's motivations. In this case, he just muddles it because... You also find out that he thinks maybe Othello, Desdemona's husband and the the noble general title character of the play, he thinks maybe Othello has slept with his wife. And then when he decides to drag this guy Cassio into the plot, he decides maybe Cassio has slept with his wife. Or he tells somebody it's because he wants money and he can make money out of this. Um, Or in another weird line, he says that um, he hates Cassio because Cassio hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. Oh, what a great line. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we've wow. been there. That's probably why we're on video <laughs> or podcast. Uh, but the Shakespeare what? has a real knack for writing. <laughs> um, no, He's going to go places, this guy. Yeah. Uh, okay, so just to wrap up, because again, I, I don't know much, but the basic plot. So Iago, who is seen by Othello as you know, a friend and trusted lieutenant, uh, is, is seething. We know this because he's telling us. And so basically he sets about this revenge plot where he ultimately makes Othello believe that Desdemona, his wife, is uh, cheating on him, which causes Othello to kill Desdemona. And I, I forget how it, how it all wraps up, but that's essentially the very basic plot, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. uh, that's what I remember. Yeah, uh, right. And then we should mention uh, Amelia. Amelia is Iago's wife, and she is Desdemona's uh, handmaiden. She waits on her, and Iago ropes her into the plot by having her sort of deliver this handkerchief that was a gift from Othello to Desdemona and make sure it finds its way into, I believe, Cassio's hands. And uh, this is what enrages Othello. Amelia, after. Desdemona kills herself, realizes that she's been duped and Othello has only been given half of the story. Instead of siding with her husband, sides with Desdemona and reveals everything, which causes Othello to kill himself out of despair. And then uh, I believe in the Branna movie, Othello stabs Iago and Iago dies from it. But I believe he he doesn't officially die in the text, right? I believe he's taken off to prison is what's supposed to happen. He's decisively not killed in the text. I think that's one of the interesting things. I know you guys did a Jack the Ripper a while back, and there's that tendency to interested in these characters who somehow seem like they never quite die. They just keep coming back around. And at the end of the play, I mean, Othello turns to this guy and he says, he he sort of asks, will you please, he asks everybody, will you demand this demi-devil why he hath thus ensnared my soul and body? And Iago's answer is, demand me nothing. What you know, you know. From this time forth, I never will speak word. Right? So he he won't tell you anything. But Othello pulls out the sword on him, right, to, to, to do this. 
And Othello says, you know, I look at your feet, but that's a fable, that if thou beest a devil, I cannot kill thee. In other words, he's looking down to see if Iago has cloven hooves. Yeah, hooves, yeah. The devil come into the world, right? And so he says it's a, it's a myth that, you know, you can't kill it. So he stabs him. And then Iago says, I hurt, sir, but not killed. So he is still alive. And you feel like this is this thing that just kind of hovers out there and moves around and finds his way inside of people, of all kinds of people, and brings out whatever's worst in them. Yeah, that allegorical quality also makes me think of Anton Sugar from uh, No Country for Old Men. This is uh, Javier Bardem's killer in that movie who uh, really seems to be like almost death itself. Like he gets wounded, but he doesn't die. He kind of walks off and you kind of get the sense that this character can't really be killed because you can't kill evil. Mm-hmm. Um, one quick yeah. uh, plot clarification, because I had said that Othello killed Desdemona, but she kills herself. No, that's no, not true. He smothers her. Oh, he smothers her. Okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure that we had that correct. At the very end, weirdly, she sort of comes back from the dead for a moment, recovers in her last breath, and they ask her who did this, and she says, nobody, I myself. Oh. It's my kind lord. So she tries to take it on herself. So that's probably where you'd get the idea that maybe she did it. But I think she's just trying to forgive her husband and wow. save him, you know, which is another way it gets just gets more heartbreaking, really, right? Um, yeah. In, in the Branham movie, isn't there this this weird, wonderful moment where he, he's finishing sort of smothering her and she's trying to fight him off. And at a certain point, she realizes she's going to die and she just kind of strokes his head as if like, oh, you know, you're going to feel so terrible when this happens. I'm sorry. I don't know why. Who tricked you into this? You know, it's it's right on the edge of being kind of politically disturbing that, you know, this is the job of the wife to say the person, the sort of the husband who kills you, you're going to try to get him forgiven. But you could feel her saying just, you know, I know you've lost your mind, you've been tricked or something. But um, but at that moment, she does try to take it on herself, which also can be read as part of the Christian allegory, I suppose. Hmm. Wow, that's uh, really heartbreaking and complex. Yeah, it's a great moment in the movie. I think what's really interesting about that last line of Iago's is it's it's the kind of the perfect way for, for a character like this to go out, where he, he reminds me a little bit of... Um, uh, we we covered Sauron a couple episodes ago when we talked about Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. And there's I think there's an obvious link between these two characters. Like he is, you know, at one point Eowyn says to him, your words are poison. And I believe Iago says something fairly similar. He says, I'll, I'll pour this pestilence into his ear. Um, and it's that same, his superpower is his ability to just convince people of things, to give them just a nudge with the wrong information delivered the right way um, to get them what they, to get them to do what he wants them to do. And for him to say, well, I'm just not going to talk anymore. I've done, you know, you've heard everything you need to hear from me, which, you know, again, we're left with this inscrutable motive. So have we, but he says, you've heard all you're going to hear from me and I'm not going to say anything else. This guy who's done nothing but talk for five acts. And now he, he shuts up and he does like, it's literally like I've done what I came here to do. Yeah, they say, you know, torture will ope your lips and uh, you get the idea. No, nope, he's not going to tell you. You're not going to be able to wrap it up. The other thing I think is interesting about that line is, right, he says what you know, you know, right, which means, you know, you have some information on me. And so that much of the plot you'll understand, but I'm not going to give you anything further. But I think that that line actually kind of comes across to us also as, you know, 
-hmm. You know perfectly well what it is that makes you envious. You know perfectly well what it is that makes you petty. It makes you want to ruin people's happiness who are happier than you are. You've all been there. Don't try to tell me you haven't. And I think that's that's sort of a super creepy add on to that moment where he says to us, don't try to pretend you don't understand what human evil is because you're all part of it. You know, that's really interesting because I have been thinking about this podcast and we do, you know, villains and why do we like villains and why are they interesting to us? And I think in a lot of ways we are attempting to understand villainy and the dark side of the human heart. And here you have this character saying, you already know. (laughs) Yeah, you don't, you don't, you, you can rationalize it all you want, but in the end, you have felt these things. You have it inside of you too. You, I don't need to explain it. And I think also he's saying, even if I gave you all the de- the, the the ins and outs of my plot from beginning to end, would it really matter? Would it would it change anything for you? And I, I think he's he's kind of daring us to say, you know, I did this evil thing. You'll never n- need to know why I did it. You know, the, my my true motives, if I even have one. And you know what? Othello's dead. Desdemona's dead. Um, I won. You know, that's and that's chilling, like his his sort of amoral stance on all of this. um, I think Kenneth Branagh does a pretty good job of playing the character in the movie where he's everybody's best friend. And then as soon as they're out of shot, out of the frame, he turns and on a dime, he's Hannibal Lecter, right? Yeah. He's this monster. He seems like a, a, I mean, they must have had a concept in Shakespeare's time, even though, you know, psychology didn't really exist of sociopaths. I mean, he seems like a real sociopath. Yeah, he obviously is, I think. I mean, there's, to me, one of the most interesting lines in the play is when he's getting, um, he's sort of dupe Rodrigo to stab Cassio for him. And Rodrigo's standing around getting ready to do this, hiding in sort of around the corner where Cassio's going to come out. And he says, you know, I don't really feel like doing this, he says, but Iago hath given me reason for it. Tis but a man gone. And those five syllables, tis but a man gone, I think you get invited to write this whole other speech that you kind of know Iago must have given Rodrigo. Mm. He says, you know, look, there's just this one, you know, you've told me you're in love with Desdemona and that's all you ever want in the world and you'll be happy forever you have her and you'll be miserable forever you don't. And now this Cassio's taking advantage of her and all you have to do is one brave little thing, just stab him and then you'll have everything you've ever wanted, right? And we're soldiers, so it's just one person killed. We kill lots of people, we're soldiers. So well, I mean, what would you rather have? A world with a million people in it and... You know, Desdemona sleeping with that slimy guy and you never get your hands on her or a world of nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine people <laughs> in, and Desdemona, you know, passionately in your arms. It's it, the problem. What's scary about Iago at these moments is he makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh, it's, yes. it's, it's a sociopath. It's somebody for whom, you know, people out there are just these kind of markers in a game of his own ego. I believe we've mentioned this on the podcast before that villains seem to be at their most terrifying when they do make sense. When you start to empathize with them. I remember that movie, uh, Der Untergang, you know, the downfall, the one where all the Hitler memes come out, you know, where he's ranting about traffic on the 405 or whatever now. But that performance was so scary because it humanized this figure to the point where you kind of understood a little bit how he could trick people into doing some of this stuff. And it's just, it's terrifying to think that we can just, that we are, if we're given permission, what we're capable of. Well, you know, and to that point, I, I'm, I have up in front of me that, um, 
kind of his big monologue, the uh, what's he then that says I play the villain speech. And about halfway through it, after he's talked, he kind of explains the advice he's giving to Othello. He then says this. He says, after all the, you know, he says, this is what I'm telling him. Then he says, how am I then a villain to counsel Cassio to this parallel course directly to his good? And I think the word parallel there is really key because what he's doing is it's essentially like he's got a car that's perched on top of a hill and he's got a car that's perched on top of another hill uh, you know, opposite it. And I'm just going to give each of these two cars a nudge and gravity will do the rest. And then I'll watch them crash. And he can say, all I'm doing is giving them a little nudge. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's these parallel courses that he just sets into motion towards each other. And he, you know, he, like, as you said, he's got Rodrigo, right? I don't need to stab him. I'll just convince this schmo to do it. Which is interesting, too, because the other thing that happens with Iago all over the place is that he keeps finding people to sort of substitute for parts of himself. And he keeps, I think, perceiving other people sort of as invading him or having stolen his identity. There's just all this weird language and implication of substitution through the play. It even, in fact, goes into the, the title. You know, the job he wanted was as lieutenant, which, of course, means, you know, the one who... He's the tenant of the, the the leadership position in lieu, you know, when the leader's away. And instead, he gets this other job as ensign, uh, holding out a flag and sign of love, as he says. But there are all these moments. In other words, he doesn't, like, he doesn't exactly say, I think Othello is having sex with my wife, right? He says, I hate the more, and it is thought abroad that twixt my sheets, he's done my office. And when he's talking about, he thinks Cassio's sleeping with his wife. As they they're having sex together, he says, "I fear Cassio with my nightcap too." So there are all these places where he sort of like sees himself in other people again, as if he's this kind of demonic possessor floating around, entering into these other identities and trying to find some way to actually exist, to be a person, to have a self. Mm. It's this sort of traveling evil that summons up and amplifies whatever it is in everybody else around him that uh, that is kind of antisocial, that is destructive. Well, that's such an interesting observation that his persona, it's like he's, yeah, not an actual person. And I, I've thought that about certain figures where you, if you're just devoted to horribleness and, and it just seems like doing terrible things, it's, what kind of inner life do you even have? It's almost like he has this concept that he's not even fully present as a human being. That's so interesting. He's a force. He says things like, you know, who would have done such a thing? No man. So there's a real kind of nothing man or nowhere man or whichever generation of pop song we want to put in there. But some version of the, the that sort of absent self that keeps trying to fill itself up. And I well, don't think that's a completely unfamiliar psychological syndrome. Well, not at all. And in fact, I think right now, you know, we're dealing with a lot of conflict in the country. And I think about that when I think about people who see enemies outside of themselves all around, right? And here's a guy who certainly <laughs> sees enemies everywhere. People are all, they're all out to get him and he wants his revenge on everybody. And, you know, when you're looking outside yourself and you're projecting, uh, you're not doing any inner work. So you really don't have an inner life. You're constantly worried about all of these externalities that you don't really have full control over. So I think that's actually a pretty astute observation on Shakespeare's part, you know, long before we had a full concept of how some of this stuff actually works. And that kind of brings us back to that, uh, you know, uh, some men want to watch the world burn 
concept. Iago does give us these surface level hints of, of why he wants to do the things he does, right? Othello is sleeping with my wife. I, you know, I got passed over for a job. But all of those things are kind of said in a context where he, again, could be just telling someone what he thinks they need to hear. He never says those things to us, the his confidant, his one confidant as the audience. When he's talking to us, he just tells us, here's what I'm kind of thinking. Here's what I'm kind of doing. But he never says, I'll finally have my revenge for X. You know, uh, Professor, let, let me ask you something. Uh, do you think it's adding something that's not there to surmise that it's possible that Iago is lying to himself about his own motives? Yeah, I think he doesn't. I think he doesn't know. I think he's grasping. He himself may be grasping around to understand what's driving him to do this. And he can't quite find it, which is another reason he feels, you know, so negated, so weirdly empty that he has to keep trying to figure out how to fill that void. And again, it's it's psychologically a plausible thing. I mean, part of it is, of course, who among us has not at moments sort of felt that people around them are more authentic and spontaneous than they are themselves. But but on another level, he's always trying to figure out how to have a self. You know, we we're saying before, like, this, you know, these people who are just kind of nothing, but part of what that lets you do, do you know people like this who are just exactly who they ought to be? They seem to be walking around and they just have how to be the right kind of guy. Absolutely. And, and at some point you start thinking, ah, that can't actually be right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is this is the cover. This is something, it's too good a performance. And all through this play, Yago is, he's just the right guy. He knows just how to make the little, you know, misogynistic jokes with the buddies and tell the dirty limerick and tell people, come on, have another drink and the back slapping and telling them about, you know, making fun of how shrewish wives are. He just knows how to play this male solidarity guy so perfectly. And I just think that it's part of one thing that you're being invited to be suspicious of is how, you know, the sort of perfect destroyer of your society is not the guy who comes in with cloven hooves and a big red trident and horns on his head. It's actually somebody who's, you know, sounds like they're giving you very sensible advice. I saw a production of this play a while back, and the one thing that struck me that I'd never thought of before is that you hear Iago giving lots of little kind of common sense proverbs. He's really good at that. And I think we all know how sometimes, you know, sounding really commonsensical, and it comes up in a lot of political situations too, you have to start realizing, gee, actually, that's a way of not thinking about things that you ought to think about. You know, it's uh Really fortunate that Iago existed before social media. <laughs> I feel like just all just all that jealousy and seeing other people, you know, doing better and just and what you were talking about in terms of all the backstopping and stuff. I just think what a tremendous amount of effort this person is exerting every day just to exist, you know, and how frustrating that must ultimately be. So yeah, I, I think we live in a time right now where we're really invited to think like that all the time. Somebody once described the internet as being everyone's highlight reel while you're living your blooper reel. Um, so, yeah. I, I think there's something to that. And I think, you know, Iago it strikes me as a, a fairly empty person in a way in that, like, you look at the structure of the play and the first kind of chunk of the play is Iago working towards what is ultimately engineering a drunken brawl where Cassio embarrasses himself and gets busted down by Othello. And if his stated intention was, yeah, I really wanted to get back at Cassio because I got passed over for this job, he kind of accomplishes that mission fairly early on. And then he just turns his attention to now saying, all right, now the rest of this play is me engineering the the adultery scheme. And it's almost as if he's just like, yeah, well, on to the next one. These people around me are 
walking, talking mannequins that I don't have to care about. So I can do whatever I want to them. And it's almost as if he's just doing this because he's bored or he, he, he he's, you know, kind of proving that he can do this, that he's capable of it. But that motiveless character makes him, like I said, all, all the more sinister because he may not have a larger goal other than just to bring misery to these people. W.H. Auden has a funny piece about, well, not funny, but about Iago called the Joker in the pack. And his basic argument is that Iago is kind of like a practical Joker, somebody who just, there's nothing to be gained, right, by any of these pranks, by putting the frog in the bed or whatever, bucket over the door, whichever one you want. What it does, though, is destroy everybody else's sense that they can go on functioning normally, that all their normal trust in other human beings, they're going to have to surrender, in which case you all become as kind of lonely and cynical and lost as he is. You know, that's interesting. I think about comedy sometimes and how it can be used to unite and to soothe. And it also can be used as like a weapon. So he's like a practical joker. I mean, I feel like practical jokes are kind of the lowest form of comedy and usually make somebody feel bad. And then how many times have we you know, heard recently, oh, it's just a joke. I was just joking or I was being sarcastic. Seems like his form of that would be fairly uh, destructive. I think it was Samuel Johnson who was talking about this play, and he described Iago as a motiveless malignancy. I think he used some phrase like that. That makes him almost seem like, you said, like almost like a possessing, like a spirit. You know, he's just this thing that haunts these people's footsteps and and slowly, you know, pushes them towards their doom with no purpose other than being just sort of this evil force of nature. And dragging them down with him. And, you know, one of the things he does to them, if we talk about him as not having an identity, he sort of stirs up this identity crisis in everybody around him. Suddenly, Desdemona's father says, I have no daughter. She has to say, husband, I don't have a husband. After he's killed her, he says, wife, I have no wife. After Cassio gets in that brawl, he says, I've lost the immortal part of myself. Everybody kind of loses who they are because he manages to stir things in a way that dissolves people's identities as well as their positive social bonds. And he says something like, I, I am all that I am, right? He's he's the opposite of that. He's sort of saying, I'm whatever I need to be in any given moment. But what he really is, is extremely slippery. Yes. And what he, yeah, he says, I am not what I am, he tells That's Rodrigo. Right. And there's a lot of language that I noticed in this play where he's always using these vague functions of the verb to be, so you can't really make a lot of sense of what he's saying. It's another symptom, I think, of that identity that just isn't there. There's all this abstract language of being that doesn't take any shape. That's interesting. Well, yeah, there's a number of interpretations, whether he's this force or whether he is just an angry loner. I mean, it can all be true. I was thinking, Doug, when you were talking about how he moves on to the next one and the next one, about that is really the curse of vengeance or jealousy. It's as if I feel like we live sometimes among people who believe that if they could just kill everybody that disagreed with them, they would finally be happy. They would live in that utopia. But you would never do it. There would only be one person left because you're always going to find conflict with somebody, you know, if you're thinking in those terms. It never ends. Yeah, especially for a character like this where, you know, again, he doesn't have a stated goal. I mean, he does say, I'm, I'm going to shut up now that I've managed to kill Desdemona and Othello. But at that point, he's captured he's you know he's subdued so he doesn't seem really capable of doing anything more um although who knows with maybe he could talk his way out of something he's certainly got a silver tongue but i think you're right dan like if he hadn't been caught if he had gotten away with it he probably would have moved on to somebody else to do this to 
You know, I was thinking, you read the stories about all these kind of mass killings, mass shootings and things. And I was realizing that the one that really I can't somehow get out of my mind is that that horrible jerk in Las Vegas who shot all those people down at the concert mm-hmm. precisely because you just can't put an explanation on it, right? You just sort of have this guy and you think maybe he's just sort of sick and cynical and what. But as far as I know, you never, I didn't leave a note. He didn't say this. There's no record of him hating this or that. He just, but it's not like he's a madman who just cracks, right? He's got time. He goes and arranges, buys this stuff and sets it all up. And then he just disappears without ever, ever having told you why it is that he just wanted to kill everybody. Um, and I, I find it somehow much harder. To, I mean, I, one of the things that I've noticed over time working with this play is that Shakespeare seems to have been very prescient about serial killers. Mm. And there's a lot of stuff that, you know, you listen to a lot, you read a lot of the things that some of these guys say when they're eventually caught. Um, and they sound very Iago-like. And, I, it, you know, it's sort of built, I was reading it about like the, the Night Stalker we had here in Southern California character has a number of things to say that sound like they should be out of this play. Um, that guy, Ted Bundy, who did all those murders of college students. In fact, Bundy, they, you know, they sort of trick him into talking. He claims he didn't do it. But the detective says, you're such a smart guy, Ted. You know, you could probably try to figure out for us what kind of guy would do it. Why would he do this? And Bundy says something just like that line I quoted before. Bundy ends up saying, I don't think there'd be any fuss. I mean, what's one less person in the world? Yeah, if once you make that choice, to once you say, I view the world as other people are basically, hey, they're just a collection of carbon and nitrogen, and I can do whatever I want, that is like a key to unlocking untold levels of horror. Because that sense that other human beings are real and have feelings, that sense of empathy, if you don't have that, there's now nothing holding you back from doing whatever you feel like. Like that one murder that I said, you know, that he gets, he's getting Rodrigo to do stabbing Cassio. You know, it makes sense, except once you start down that road, it's a steep, slippery slope all the way down into genocide. Just people who are in the way. When I watched the movie, the, the first thought I had about Iago, because we had discussed, hey, what Shakespeare villain should we do on the podcast? And we kicked around a few. And as I watched this one, my first thought was like, gee, this guy's kind of small potatoes. Like the scale of what he's trying to do is he's not trying to conquer the world. He's not trying to overthrow a kingdom. He kind of just wants to like cost this guy his job and mess up these people's marriage. But the more you watch it, the more you realize like what this guy represents is so much worse and so much more uh, to reuse the term malignant. He represents such an amoral black hole. More so than any villain I can recall reading in any other Shakespeare play. Um, yeah, malignant, also like this sort of dark thing that grows inside you, right, and that destroys you. He's, he, you know, he gets he gets Desdemona's father to sort of amplify his racism and his sexual possessiveness in a way toward his daughter implicitly. He gets Cassio to fall for his weakness for alcohol and also his personal vanity. He knows how to bring that out. He gets this Rodrigo who's so in love with Desdemona. He plays on his lust um, and his sort of class privilege reflex, he bit by bit can figure out what there is about anybody that if he can just blow the coals a little bit, is going to burst into some kind of destructive flame. And so, yeah, he's just around, but he is this malignant form. And, you you know, he's got it all, right? He's You've got lust and he's got bloodlust and you've got the sins of pride. And 
you've got betrayal and lying and jealousy and professional envy. You know, it's like you got this whole collection, but it's not like you got a parade of the seven deadly sins going across the stage. You've got one guy who's just kind of doing this stuff. And interestingly, he, uh, he himself kind of doesn't have any of those vices. He exploits those vices in other people, right? Like, well, this is what's so interesting he, to me about yeah. him. He's almost, you could make a case for him being blameless because he didn't do these things. You know, who's really to blame for all this stuff, right? He gives him a nudge, but people have a choice. They have free will. Yeah, I mean, in theory, you know, Othello could have done more investigation. He could have talked to more people and figured out, oh, my wife's not sleeping on me. He could have just trusted her. Or he if he thought his wife was sleeping, could, on, you know. uh, sleeping around, he didn't have to kill her. Right. But like to get back to this, where like you talked about, for example, he tries to exploit racism against Othello. But we don't get the sense that he's racist himself. He's trying to exploit lust, other people's lust for Desdemona. But other than sort of these oblique references that we can't really trust, we don't get the sense that he's lusting after her. He, you know, he all of these sins that he's exploiting in other people, it's all just like a tool in his toolkit. And he's somehow in this weird, like, plane of vice or sin that's above all of those, just pulling the strings. Yeah, it's that's another part of what's so unsettling about this play is you don't he just doesn't obviously look like the villain to anybody you play drives you crazy because everybody keeps saying oh iago's so honest honest honest, (laughs) good old iago and it does make you say because i think the play make you you, it could be too easy to say othello's terrible othello is has this wonderful wife and he believes this ridiculous story about her with no proof whatsoever and then kills her so this play is about this terrible guy But if you put yourself in the position where you say you're dealing with somebody who you completely trust and you've had to trust in all these situations where your life was at stake. And what if whoever that is, you say two guys doing a podcast together, for example, what if it turned out (laughs) that one of them had nothing in the world that they want to do more than completely destroy the other one once they had the person's trust. (laughs) That's ridiculous. I don't know why you would say something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, so you you see what I mean though, right? You know, it's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) well, yeah, it's, 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 yeah. I mean, it takes this thing that's a virtue, which is trust and it turns it into a weakness which is very scary. Yeah, and he also has this brilliant strategy that he does really to break down Othello in the, the main scene where he, he makes all his progress in the middle of the play, where he sort of convinces Othello to be just, you know, sensible about this. Like, don't be suspicious of your wife, but don't completely trust your wife, right? This nice middle course. And he really soft pedals it. To, it's a lot of like, well, I, I, I may know something. I, I don't know. It's Maybe it's nothing. He makes himself. The thing Iago does with everybody is he convinces them that he's the defense attorney when he's really the prosecutor. Mm. So he's but in terms Doug say, can understand. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's just, you know, gets to the absurd level, right? Where he's talking and Othello is now pretty convinced and, and you know, he says to him, well, you know, what if she's naked abed with her friend an hour or two, not meaning any harm? And, you know, he, he just... <laughs> He has a way of turning the whole thing inside out on you and seeming to be holding out in defense of somebody. In fact, there's a wonderful betrayal moment when that brawl has happened that he gets Cassio involved in and Othello is demanding to know who started it. And Iago says, I'd rather have my tongue cut from my mouth than it should do offense to Michael Cassio. I was like, thanks, buddy, right? (laughs) (laughs) He just throws the name in there as if he was trying to protect the guy. So... He's terrifyingly skilled at doing that. 
The other thing I wanted to say about that is just that with suspicion, you know, as soon as he gets you to that point, Othello tries to say, well, no, this is not a problem. I'll figure it out. You know, if she's cheating on me, I'll stop loving her. And if she's not cheating on me, I'll stop worrying. I'm feeling jealous. And, you know, that doesn't work, right? Right, right. It doesn't work. But once you've got him thinking, I can do this, um, then he's stuck in the middle, right? And how can you have that, right? How can you have trust in... In, in the world, in your, how can you, you know, throw yourself into a love affair, a marriage, whatever else, if you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, of course I trust you, but I just, you know, hack your phone every once in a while. Mm. It doesn't, you know, it's just, you got to make a leap of faith and it's, it's a terrifying thing to do. And he knows that, you know, he's exploiting that all I have to do is just plant just the smallest seed and that will cause enough harm. It will, it will cause Othello to unravel. Um, and it's that's I think also what makes him scary is that like he doesn't have to do much, you know how 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 razor thin is that line between, you know everything being okay and total ruin, and he knows just where that line is and how to exploit it. It does make me think of the Joker quite a bit, and uh, there's an Alan Moore story, the Killing Joke, where I think the Joker's point is everyone's like one bad day away from basically being him and going insane. But when you look at this story, you see the the thin membrane that holds society together, right? This social contract that we're going to trust each other, we're going to assume the best about everyone's motives, and then here's this guy whose superpower is he's not beholden to any of that. Yeah, at the end of the play, they act like, you know, the guy from Venice comes in and he sorts everything out and here's you'll torture this guy and here you'll get this property and everything's settled down and I'll give the news to the state and tell them what happened. But you can't go out of the other end of this play, I think, at a, a good production of it, at least, without thinking, oh, no, that doesn't really close out the possibility. Instead, there's this thing still floating around here that, as you say, at any moment could bring the whole thing crashing down and we'd all be killing each other. And we wouldn't even completely understand why. It's just this stuff in us that can be let loose by somebody who has that kind of nihilistic, cynical drive in him. And I think once everybody just to, to, to have to suffer as much a sense of the impossibility of love and trust in the world as he himself does. Well, yeah, Dan, it's kind of like what you said there. We, we, we rely on not just the, the general social contract, but like our, you know, our one-on-one bonds with other people. And, you know, our whole society depends on it. And a character like Iago or like the Joker is frightening because they are holding a mirror up to that and say, look how easy it is for me to bring that crashing down. I, it takes so little. And that is what I think you, you leave with unsettled. Like, okay, Iago himself is dealt with, but that weakness he exposes through his actions is still there and can never be really papered over. I think Shakespeare puts that in the play, too, in the form of the handkerchief that you talked about as this sort of key plot point. I mean, Iago himself says, you know, trifles light as air I can give him will be taken as, as proofs of holy writ. But there's just, you know, there's just this little piece of cloth. And somehow that can just destroy everything in the right hands, mm. which are wrong hands. Uh, yeah. Well, Doug, do you think we're ready to move on to the alignment? I think it's an easy one. <laughs> I, I, I think so. So, <laughs> Professor, uh, one thing we like to do in this podcast is uh, we look at the villain and decide where they go on the Dungeons & Dragons moral alignment chart. Are they what's called lawful evil, neutral evil, or chaotic evil? Are you familiar with those or no? Sorry, you got the wrong guy now. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, Joe uh, Cool. Well, let's explain uh, it. I mean, chaotic <laughs> evil sounds pretty good, but... Yeah, I think you're on the right track. But yeah, go ahead, Doug. Explain. Yes. The difference. No, uh, so lawful evil is um, characters that impose like an evil system. So like uh, Darth Vader or a- Adolf Hitler. These characters have like an evil 
order to them. Neutral evil is a very self-interested form of evil where there, I think uh, we, a character we've done or a person we've done was Al Capone. Like uh, this person is out for personal gain and they just don't care about the collateral damage. They're not looking to cause collateral damage, but they don't lose sleep over it. And then chaotic evil is where sadism and agony is the goal, is the stated goal. So we've done Freddy Krueger, for example. He's a good chaotic evil character. And as you said, Dan, I think this one's kind of a walk. Yeah. Where would you put uh, Iago, (laughs) Professor? (laughs) Well, the end of the Orson Welles movie, they put him in a big cage and hang him up in the air. I don't know if that's going to solve anything, but... That's kind of where I'd like him to be, because I don't think he'd be able to kill him. <laughs> right. Okay. So physically put him in a cage. Yeah, but he's, he's like pretty quintessentially chaotic evil. I don't think there's really much of a debate here. He gets off on it, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's his goal. I, unless you buy into one of his stated motives and then you say, okay, he's just out for revenge because he lost out on a promotion, that would drive him into the neutral category. But because... I mean, really, that is the essence of this character is that he is chaotic and that I think that drives the whole thing. So. Yeah, I think anybody who gives you nine reasons why they do something is lying to you. Right. Good point. Um, OK, so this is interesting because we, you know, we do fan casting sometimes at the end. We like to talk about who might play this person. Um, I, I'm happy to do that. I'm also sort of curious, Professor, if you saw if you were to, to mount this play or to, you know, if there was another film, like, is there something that you would like to see explored in that production? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things. I think one is that I think in the play, Othello's vulnerability is partly one factor in it that's underrated is a lot of anxiety about his own virility. Mm. Now, you know, we'd have to sort of talk for a very long time to establish why I think that. but, But I do think that along with his race, there's also the fact that's somewhat overlooked, which is that he is definitely signaled as being older. And there are a lot of moments in the play where part of the reason why it's easy for Iago to get him feeling sexually dubious of Desdemona's sexual loyalty has to do with some anxiety about that. So I think there could be more done with that side of it instead of focusing as predictably a lot of work does lately on the issue of his blackness. So you would have Lawrence Fishburne do it again just 20, 25 <laughs> years older. later. Try this yeah. again. You're looking a little more kind of weak. <laughs> right. Interesting. I got a question. I, I, is it implied at all in this story with all these inscrutable motives that we can choose from that there's any um, romantic tension between Iago and Othello? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. So this is it's another place really where you get a whole plausible line of explanation but maybe having a line of explanation is kind of a lost cause because you got a whole religious allegory and it makes sense. He's the devil. You got all kinds of ways. Oh, he's, you know, and theater historians will tell you he's a malcontent character. You had those in the period because all these humanists grew up and they didn't have good jobs. So they got malcontents. Moderns will tell you, no, this is, you know, the modern story of this. But I think if you actually look, I mean, what does he complain about? He complains about Cassio's daily beauty. And he has this weird speech where he makes up a night, he invents a dream in which Cassio, who happens to be sharing the bed with him as soldiers would, thinks he's Desdemona and rolls over and kisses him and so on. So does he hate Cassio for rousing his repressed homoerotic urges? Fine. Then is he maybe jealous of Desdemona because she has Othello and he feels slighted in his love by Othello? Does he hate Othello for having chosen Cassio over him? 
there is a plausible line in which you can create a scenario in a kind of modern psychoanalytic model that says, yep, this, we've got him here. This is what's wrong. He, you know, he's, he's sexually repressed. I just think that simple answers are what we get drawn into and then obliged to abandon. Well, this is why Shakespearean characters are so exciting for actors, because you get to get in there and make these choices and explore what resonates for you. So, you know, with Iago, you really have this fantastic menu of options, it sounds like. Yeah, it's all there. And, you know, he's bitter about his wife and she seems to be sexually frustrated. And, you know, it's just this is the thing about Shakespeare. You're just traveling through this weird, like electrically charged field of possibilities. And whatever you bring to it, there's all these different ways that it could come out. And I think that's one reason that, you know, the plays keep coming back and actors love doing it. And I think Iago's got to be, it's such a great part. And because as you started saying early on, you know, he's also very funny. And then if you get the audience to laugh with him, then the audience feels even worse, which is Iago getting the audience. When we try to do the fan casting for the villain, it's like, well, who's already done it? So they're off the board. And for this one, it was like, oh, every British person has played Iago. So they're all out. Um, but yeah, Dan, did you have someone in mind who you thought would be good at this? Oh, uh, I, you know, this is always tough for me. And, and I guess it'll, it, it's impossible. But all this talk of the Joker makes me wish I could have seen Heath Ledger do it. Did he ever do it by any chance? Is that? I have like, no oh, idea. OK, I, he just I mean, I think he would have killed it. So uh, that that would be that's the person that jumps to my mind. I went with a different comic book character. I, I thought of Tom Hiddleston, who plays mm. uh, Loki in the MCU. I thought he's sure. he's obviously a very charming kind of guy who, again, is a, a trickster. So I, I think he would slip into those shoes pretty well. You and I are such Hollywood producers and how we look at this. We're like, oh, you already kind of did this. So, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you'd yeah. be good. You're, we already saw you kind of do basically the same thing. Yep. Can, you do, can you do a little more like Loki this time? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. Put on these horns. Yeah. <laughs> uh wow okay great well sorry i guess we're gonna we're gonna do the matchup i feel this feels like such a childish thing to do in the in the presence of a college professor but are we are we gonna do it Doug? i guess we have to oh yeah we gotta do this <laughs> okay uh, so this actually is kind of an interesting do you do uh, the, matchup wait, uh dan did you want to do the cobra thing first or oh I, I, is that gonna be a regular, a regular i don't know I, we, we did this last week. Um, we we did uh, we covered uh, Cobra Commander from the '80s cartoon GI Joe. He's very and, busy, Doug. Why are you? I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the the thing that stuck out to this uh, about Cobra Commander was that the the fun of that character was having super outrageous schemes. So I was going to pull a uh, a random scheme from a random GI Joe episode and see how Iago would handle this scheme instead of uh, uh, Cobra Commander. So here we go. Uh, oh, a, to- a top secret nitrogen rocket fuel is stolen from the Joes and is accidentally stored in a greenhouse. The plants grow immensely, giving Destro a plan to seed the world with mutated fruits and vegetables to crush GI Joe in a gigantic jungle. So. Iago with a bunch of mutated fruits and vegetables. Uh, uh, professor, you probably get this. You get this question all the time. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Doug. What What is the question? What the question is how would he How would he succeed where others have failed? <laughs> mutated plants. I'm sorry. It sounds ridiculous even saying it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm afraid. You know that that question does come up a lot, of course, but. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure any scholars have given an answer that I consider satisfactory. <laughs> That's probably yeah. good enough. I yeah, I, I, Doug seems to think this segment has legs. I have questions. About, um, 
but you know the other thing we do is we, we the like matchup is more successful well the previous week's villain and this week's villain you know and a who would win and interestingly our, our I think you know our timeline's a little messed up right now in terms of our roll up but the last one we recorded was Idi Amin I think I know how Iago would approach that as as you know someone who would just get cozy and do his usual shtick right although well, you know. so that line he talks about is jealousy being the green eyed monster that doth mock the meat it feeds on so uh, I think this, the cannibalistic element of the Idi Amin story would play right in there. Right. And he's already, a, you know, he doesn't need much of a nudge. He's already a pretty evil figure. So I, I think uh, Iago would make short work of Edie. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a Shakespeare game, you know, because you can do this with Shakespeare's tragic heroes that you put, you know, Hamlet in Othello's position and he's going to ask a billion questions and figure the whole thing out and it'll be fine. And you put Othello in Hamlet's position and he's just going to go chop up King Claudius. The problem seems to be where you run into the nemesis, you know, the one problem that fits your limitations. Mm. Uh, well, I think that pretty, I feel like we really, uh, I learned a lot. And uh, I went into this thinking Iago was a lot more cut and dried. And now I, I realize that he is uh, fascinatingly complex. Doug, do you have any anything else you need to uh, explore? No, I don't think so. I mean, we I think we really covered uh, all the bases. We we uh, everyone gets credit for this course. Professor, I cannot thank you enough for for taking time out to talk to the two of us. Uh it was a real pleasure having uh someone with uh your background being able to speak intelligently about this instead of us two just fumbling around in the dark. No, thanks. You guys are really good to talk to. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye. bye. Okay, so uh Professor Watson has left the room and it's back to just Doug and myself. Uh, man, what a treat. Um, what a real kind gesture for him to take time out to do this with us. Oh, um, absolutely. You know, it's so much fun to just dig into these characters and just get really enthusiastic and excited. And it was really infectious to have Professor Watson's enthusiasm for the material. It got me excited about it. Yeah. We should uh, bring this to a close, though, and uh, we hope you all enjoyed listening to it. So if you like the podcast, please do uh, drop us a review at Apple Podcasts. That helps with our visibility, helps get the word out. And of course, we want you to help us get the word out. And even more importantly than that, we want to hear from you. So you can find us on Twitter at Podcast But Evil. And uh, I've seen some of you guys out there liking the tweets and or retweeting them. Uh, we want you to do more than that in that we really want to hear what you have to say. Join us in the conversation. Absolutely. Uh, you know, let us know what other Shakespeare plays are out there, because I just don't know. I would like <laughs> only there was a, a collection of them somewhere. <laughs> yeah, please inform me. Um, all right. Well, do we know who we're doing next, uh, Doug? Are we out of are we out beyond our I think we do know. Oh, we do know. Uh, oh, right. Next okay. time, where we're going, uh, where our podcast has not gone before, um, we're going to be covering Q from Star Trek. Yes, not Q from James Bond, but Q and not from Q Star from Trek. horrible right wing conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> we will be doing John Delancey's character Q. Uh, <laughs> Q. It's another one of your games, Q. Yes. So, uh, so look for that. And we'll have a special guest for that one as well. That's going to be really fun. Yeah, I mean, there, we, we were talking about that, and we were like, well, there's just so much material there. So we need to bring in a ringer, someone who's actually right. seen all the various appearances. So that'll be exciting. So what we Our found, first, we uh, found UCLA's Star Trek professor, who will be with us <laughs> next week. <laughs> yes. Well, he teaches Klingon, but it's adjacent. So Right. Uh, um, so, all right, well. Yeah, until next time, gentlemen, to evil. Clink. Clink. Who invaded Spain in the 8th century? That's a joke. The Moors. Oh, no. 
I'm so sorry, it's the moops. The correct answer is the moops. Moops? Let me see that. That's not moops, you jerk. It's Moore's. It's a misprint. I'm sorry, the card says moops. It doesn't matter. It's Moore's. There's no moops. It's moops. Moore's. Moops. 